at SAFM Radio and at Positive GP on Twitter. Good afternoon and thank you so much uh, for tuning in. We, yeah, no, that, that conversation earlier on and that song, I'm same WhatsApp group. Uh, we, we need to really start loving one another, just connecting at a deeper level. When we say I love you, mean it, mean it. And looking at this weather, there are so many people who are miserable uh, today simply because you forgot to just say these keywords, I love you. I, I need you, I appreciate you, and uh, that was Luther Vendros, here now. And be faithful, <laughs> faithful to your words, things that you commit to. And right now we start with Umkhabulo, um, South African history lesson, as uh, we reflect on uh, things that make us as, as uh, South African, uh, what constitutes our history. And we are going to be focusing on a son of the soil uh, and joining us on the line uh, to just help us understand him better. Uh, we're joined by Mr. Jablan Nistole, who's a former lecturer uh, in the history of uh, uh, the University of KwaZulu-Natal. Uh, I think it's in the history department, I guess. And uh, he's also a chair of uh, Lutuli House Museum. Uh, Ujobe is joining us on the line. Good afternoon, sir. Good afternoon, sir. Good, good afternoon to the listeners as well. Now, you know, when we talk about Ushaga Zulu, what people remember are just the wars and, and uh, how much of a warrior he was. Um, talk to us about his early childhood. Yeah, no, you're quite right. People t- tend to actually emphasize the warrior part of Ushaga. Ushaga was a child that, if I may add, was born out of wedlock. Mm-hmm. Remember, King Senzangakona, his father. Yeah. was not formally married to Unandi yes. or Wamsongo at some point. And uh, he was actually raised amongst his maternal people until he was actually uh, of uh, uh, teenage years. And then he moved on to stay with Utingiswayo and the Mtetwa people, mm-hmm. where he actually rose to prominence. And uh, if you like, uh, where his skills as a warrior were nurtured. But otherwise, he comes from a background of a child that was actually raised amongst his maternal people, I would actually say. Could could it be that somehow, because, you know, now that we know what we know, um, that some of the things that he did and, and how he grew up as a leader, uh, there was some bitterness and anger um, that his father initially denounced him. Yeah, they could be that. I mean, I would say that. But uh, surely if you actually approach it from that point of view, there is a danger of actually narrowing the scope of understanding who he was. Because, look, for him to actually emerge as a warrior, and I must add something that is quite important, the builder of the Zulu kingdom, because remember, before him, there was no Zulu kingdom. The Mm -hmm. Zulu chieftainship was quite small. I know there is a tendency of just having King Senzangakona. I've just used that term myself. Senzangakona was not a king. In fact, he was actually a ninkosi, if I may use the terminology that is now common in Guazulu Natal, we used to call him a chief, a ninkosi mm. of a smaller Zulu clan that was actually paying loyalty to the Mtetwa people. Because mm. there were kingdoms before. There was a Mtetwa kingdom, there was a Dwandwe kingdom, mm. there was a Tembe kingdom, the Maputo kingdom, the kingdoms that are before that. But I think the context that I want to emphasize is that there was a particular context that gave opportunities for him to centralize. 
mm-hmm. uh, his own chieftainship. Uh, and of course, to emerge and uh, distinguish himself as an outstanding figure, no doubt. Yeah. The fact that he was rejected by his family was going to contribute, but they were also aiding sort of things. The, the one context was, uh, we have often emphasized this, was the issue of drought. There was drought that is often known historically as Umadzatule. Umadzatule, if you translate it, you get whatever you get to eat and you eat quietly on the corner because there is scarcity in their country. Yeah. But why it is important for me? It's important because it is a contributing factor mm. to the centralization of polities in South East Africa. I would actually call it South East Africa at the time. It wasn't called was Zulu, the Zulu Kingdom or Natal mm-hmm. before it's before that period. It's in the 1750s and it goes on up until the 1810. I think it's 1810 thereabout where it is actually very, very acute. Then uh, as a result of it, there was what then was the regiment formation because mm-hmm. the rulers needed to actually assemble young men who were going to defend. Uh, the territory that they had uh, for grazing purposes, the territory that they had so that they could actually win over other gray, I mean, uh, other pastures that could be used for their cattle. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's that that actually caused centralization, and it happens long before he's born. That's the one, and he's born into that context. The second one what is the whole issue of your international trade out of the Lagoa Bay, the raids that were actually involved in that as well. That would give rise to the Tembe Kingdom around Maputo because that's the kingdom that is actually going to be quite important. It's actually inherited. It's the Maputo kingdom, as they would call it. And there is Ndwandwe kingdom, which is south of Maputo and stretches into Nongoma. And then south of that, into Richard's Bay and Bangin, is the Tingiswayo M. Tetwa's kingdom. It was ruled by Jobe before that, mm. uh, because Tingiswayo is given. And, and Shaga is emerging in that particular context. But then, of course, the point that we were making earlier is very true. I mean, crucial in the sense that uh, he was having this anger yeah. and he was able to distinguish himself. And, of course, he was going to assert himself and then seize power from his half-brother and then become a leader of the Zulu people himself. Let's talk about how he then ascends um, to, to being uh, the leader of, of the Zulu people. Uh, when he was uh, amongst the Mtetwa people, there are often quite a number of names that are forgotten. When he was amongst the Mtetwas, he led a regiment, and I think one of the regiments was of young men, uh, the these young people who he led for quite a long time, alongside some of the very prominent figures. One of them was Mgomane, Mzeche, mm. of the Mzeche people around Gaza. Uh, these days, we have your official praise singer for the current king. Uh, we always call him Umsinda, so he's from the Mzeche people. And there were quite a number of other prominent people. And he was able to distinguish himself. The rivalry at the time was between the Dwandwe kingdom under Zwite Galanga mm. and under uh, uh, Jobe earlier on, and then later on, it's Tigiswayo himself. Uh, there was rivalry over territory and amongst the Shubi people as well, who then uh, moved from Clip River area that uh, migrated south as a result of the push and pull factor, as I was saying, at Delagoa Bay. The slave raid at Delagoa Bay, the cattle raid, the women raid in that area. That then actually centralized him. Now, in those wars that were taking place at the time, is when he was going to distinguish himself. The one very key point that he was going to make is that there was a circumcision school. 
and he got rid of the circumcision school when he grew older because he felt it actually puts young men at bay for quite a long time whilst they're actually recovering from this circumcision as a sign of manhood, that they are making this transition from boyhood to manhood. And then he wanted armies to be there available all the time. But those armies as well, I must emphasize, were some kind of labor power that was required by the rulers themselves because i mean surely these people are not merely just rulers uh, uh, they were rulers that needed to have labor power and that needed to create the various uh, royal homesteads and in this process then he distinguished himself as this very prominent very able fighter very able warrior himself around this time and there's so much uh, that can be learned uh, from his supremacy he's um the way he formulated uh, the the military system yeah that in itself is extremely important because surely uh, the one very important innovation that can be mentioned offhand was the fact that before he rose to prominence, the tendency was that people were throwing spears. Mm. Whenever warriors would stand as, group, as, as groups this side, as groups, as groups that side, and then what they would then do is that they would start throwing spears at one another. And he then said, well, look, that's a very cowardly way of conducting warfare. What would be important is to actually then develop a shorter spear. Don't lose it if you go out to war. You need to come back with it. And then start engaging the enemy. That's the one aspect. The second aspect related to that was this bullhorn kind of uh, uh, formation where the younger people would actually be at the wings uh, mm-hmm. and more like horns. And then, of course, the more experienced warriors would then be at the center, what people would actually call is fuba or rather the sort of chest. Those mm-hmm. were the ones that would engage the enemy, whilst these younger men would actually be running around to, to encircle the enemy and uh, disorganize it that way. So as a result of it, he was able to win one battle after another. But it doesn't necessarily mean that he himself did not actually, uh, was not forced on the retreat. The Zulu armies, I think in 1818 at some point, were forced on a retreat. Mm. And they landed amongst, I think, the Zitoles uh, out at Inganja, in the area known as Kudeli. Because, uh, of course, the narrative, if you take it from a Zulu perspective, is that they, it was a more of a scorched earth policy. They were actually, you know, running away, destroying crops, so mm. that the pursuing Zwede people would not have any resources to eat. But it was one of the very important sort of uh, developments that he and uh, the innovations that he introduced. Yes. So as as we conclude this conversation, sadly, I wish we could just carry on and on because there's so much um, that we yet to be exposed to about this warrior. Is there any documented information about how many battles he won? I have never actually tallied them, but there are quite a number of them. Mm. Yeah, there are quite a number of them, and uh, some of them, uh, I mean, the, the testimony to that is the fact that he was able to integrate and even begin to build what we would actually call some kind of more uh, obedient sort of uh, subjects on the periphery of the Zulu kingdom, the Mkizes, as an example, mm. around the Gandla together area mm. uh, where some of the very loyal sort of uh, chiefdoms that were established by Shaga to actually look at the Western Front. And similarly, he was doing the same, moving up northwards and even taking over what used to be the Dwandwe, the Dwandwe territory. Because mm. the Nongoma that you know today, which is the Zulu heartland, 
was originally, and it's generally accepted, was originally your Duandwe territory. But then in 1821, the Duandwe started disintegrating, and many of your prominent generals that had been led by Zwite Galanga moved in different directions. Mm. Naba is one of them. Amongst them, Sundays, he dies on the banks of the Zambezi. Uh, uh, so Shangane is another one who ends up uh, uh, in Mozambique in what is known as the Gaza province. The other one is Zwangenda, but they end up around uh, uh, the, amongst the Goni people in Malawi, some in Zambia, some in Tanzania. So mm-hmm. there are quite a number of them, but all of those were people who were actually retreating, fleeing away from Shaga that had established himself and had established what I would actually say compared to the earlier kingdoms that I mentioned was a much more centralized larger kingdom compared to the earlier ones that were there. Mm. And it, of course, develops alongside your Lesotho one, which is Mshoshua in 1824, yeah. along your Swazi one, which also emerges in the 1820s when the Zambinis take over from the Masegos. So it's that kind of very complex sort of development which can be attributed to him. I think some historians and some political figures, I can think of Chief Albert Lutuli, mm. when the monument was opened in 1954, he remarked about the fact that Shaga was able to unite people, integrate and create a kingdom where none had existed before. He might have been overstretching that a bit. Because, sure. as I say, they were centralized polities, but his was very complex. That's the one point. The other talking point, which I would love to just leave for us to think about, mm. is that when we talk about Igordo, Igordo, of course, uh, even when we are still at, uh, in the boarding schools, Igordo associated with women. Shaga had his court, or many of them. This is where women were staying, and this is where warriors were stationed. The key question that we should be asking ourselves, what is it that uh, justifies our assumption that Shaga had never had children, that Shaga was not married? The question that perhaps as a society we need to be thinking about more broadly because from where I'm seated, I'm very skeptical about the fact that she was never married. Because then you need to say in the current context, in the 21st century, who will actually lose if you mention that he was married and he had descended? That's exactly it. Uh, yeah. But I guess when we begin to open these dialogues, these conversations, uh, those questions will be answered. And then fateful day happens on the 22nd of September, 1828. Yes. And this in our history, it broke my heart. Take us through this day. Yeah, I think around this time, it also has a lot to do with what had happened earlier on. I know it's a sensitive matter in the KZN province, but as a historian, we talk about it. The fact that uh, in the family, you don't spill blood of your very close one, mm. right? And I think it's a very sensitive matter in the royal family. You can't actually be killing your own siblings mm. uh, in order for you to ascend to power. And it's another area that is a, a silence, a very definite silence. Yeah. Because when he is killed around this time, he is killed by two of his half-brothers, Msandano and Digan. Mm. There is a story that is often told, the anecdotes, and which has to be pursued at some point as we talk about nation building these days. Yeah. When uh, they kill him, they kill him primarily because they, the claim was he was too bloodthirsty. Yeah. But it would seem to me it was more paying the revenge for Skucha who had been killed earlier on because he had spilled the blood of one of his siblings mm-hmm. in order for him to ascend to power. But then again, the story that is often not told is why it was Dingan who succeeded and not Mshangan who succeeded uh, Shangana Senzangakon as the next Zulu king. 
it was the story that is often told is that my woman was very decisive because they were powerful women. Mama was one of them. The sister as well, because these were twins. There's another one. Then Shaga's sister has himself was also very powerful. It's so unfortunate that uh, conversations (laughs) like these, I mean, you're such an orator and a teacher of note. We definitely are going to be knocking at your doors and just unleash that professor in you as you continue educating us. Right. No, that's fine. That's fine. I know time is Thank not on our side. Absolutely. But appreciate Thank you. Thank you very much. That's uh, Professor Jablani Stole, uh, former lecturer of history at the University of KwaZulu-Natal and uh, Peter Malisbeck uh, campus. And uh, he's also chair of Lutuli House Museum.